I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I'm excited to be teaming up with Lexus GX and SiriusXM on some very special 99PI episodes. We're heading to some of the cities in the U.S. that have special meaning for me and exploring the ways that these cities marry form and function. To learn more about the Lexus GX and SiriusXM and Lexus vehicles, visit Lexus.com slash GX and SiriusXM.com slash Lexus trial. The all-new Lexus GX. Live up to it. Check out the 99% Invisible feed now and listen to these special episodes. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. I have someone to ask this question now. Ooh. Have you ever tried a kind bar? You said that to me. Hi, it's John Lovett. I'm here. Uh, you said that to me in such a kind of... um. Uh, coquettish way, and I hated it. <laughs> I love Kind Bars. I eat Kind Bars all the time. I actually have a very specific endorsement vis-a-vis Kind Bars, which is I find that, you know, I'm busy. Uh, we have this media empire. It's, it's on, this, on sprawling which... Sprawling at this Sprawling, point. on which the sun never sets. But um, I'll, I definitely like, you know, I don't miss a meal on it. I, and I wasn't going to say anything, but... And then, uh, but what I find is if I don't eat a snack at around three or three thirty, my dinners become insane. So for instance, yesterday I didn't have a snack. And so I walked out of this office and I walked down the street to Norm's, the diner by myself and sat at the counter and ate a turkey burger with cheese and, and French fries. And because it was a special day, it was a special, I got a, <laughs> a, a $1, it was a day for which it was a special. There was a $1.50 ice cream sundae, which I ate by myself at the counter at Norm's. Now I say this realizing that Elijah was here for our taping of Pod Save America this morning, which I also revealed that this morning I went to Norm's again and had a steak for breakfast. The point I'm getting to is this. If I have a kind bar at 3 or 3.30, my dinners can be salads, my dinners can be sensible. If not, I become a gremlin consume everything I see, and I'm angry at myself, and I can rest the microphone on my stomach. Which you're kind of doing, like, right right now. Yeah. Yeah. So if you want to try Kind Bars <laughs> <laughs> to pick up a free sample box. Get kind, the sample box. The, I like, whatever. I like the non-sweet ones. They have a jalapeno one. They have a chili one. Yeah. And you got, you maybe you got a frou-frou fancy palette like Anna Marie Cox. If you have more of a kind of all-American palette like I have. Just get a one that has chocolate and nuts in it, it and enjoy like it. you're not very discriminating, though. I don't know if you really want to be like... <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. I like food. Kindsnacks.com <laughs> slash friends. That's kindsnacks.com slash friends. You get a free sample box. Kind bars are awesome. Do it. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These, a show where we talk about the differences between us, but don't let them divide us. My guest this week is Alex Wagner, the author of Future Face, A Family Mystery, An Epic Quest, and The Secret of Belonging. Uh, She is one of the hosts of The Circus on Showtime, in addition to being a longtime host on MSNBC, and she was the editor of a music magazine. She's much cooler than I am. And I interviewed her in front of a live audience at the very, very awesome Hennepin County Library in downtown Minneapolis. Stay tuned through the whole show, because after I talk to her, we take a break, and then there are some audience questions. Enjoy. All right. All right. Are we talking close enough to the mic? 
We had a hold on conversation about how to, how to hold the mic. We yeah. want to hold it really close, but we were told to hold yeah. it at a safe distance. I think I can keep this really short. <laughs> um, secret to belonging. Go. <laughs> page, page 312 of the book. Read it. Check it out. All right. No, I, I actually, you know, that, that is the enticing promise of your title, right? Is the secret to belonging. Yeah. Is there a spoiler alert you want to give us? Should we I will talk give, about okay, this? So, so let me, just for context, I am an only child, right. as you are. Yeah. Um, and my mother is from Rangoon, Burma. And my father was born in a tiny town in northeast Iowa called Lansing, right on the Mississippi River. I know there are Mississippi River in the house. House. We have Mississippi River stands here. <laughs> yeah. Um, and... You know, I, 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 the best metaphor I can use is I felt like an astronaut without a base station. I didn't really know where I belonged. And I didn't think much of it until I, there's this kind of like rosebud moment that happened when I was 12 years old. I was at a diner with my dad and my dad got up from the counter to use a restroom and the line cook turned and looked at me and said, are you adopted? And I, it was the first time I realized that the way I saw myself as a generically American kid who liked Garfield and Saved by the Bell and Chips Ahoy, that's not how everybody else saw me. And there, this line cook didn't, he couldn't fathom that I would be the natural born daughter of this white American. And it was the first time I really had to confront identity. And the first time I felt like, oh, I don't, I don't belong here. People think I'm different. Um, and I sort of held on to that feeling until maybe 1993, which is when Time Magazine had this cover that proclaimed the future face of America. And it was this racially composite image of the races that would be predominant in America in the years hence. And I looked at it, and I was in high school, and I said, oh my God, that's me. I'm future face. And that was like, I write in the book, it was akin to thinking you were a pigeon all your life and finding out you were a toucan. I was this <laughs> like exotic bird from the future. And I was here to show all of you what your future would look like. And that was, that I felt like I sort of belonged in this nebulous brown imaginary community. But of course, when you're everything, you're also nothing. And as I grew older, I realized like, there was no rootedness in that. And there was no true community in being just nebulously future phase. So the book is really about my quest to find my people and to find that sense of belonging. Right. And, and, and to your original question, <laughs> I'll, 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 and, and, and I think that you've, you've, you've laid out, I mean, that's the, that's the, that's the book is like your journey from feeling um, like a, you want to know where you belong and you kind of t follow a few different strands <laughs> as it were, um, including DNA strands Yep. Um, to try and find a sense of identity. And I don't think I'm spoiling anything when I say it turns out to be more complicated than just. Yeah. It's finding. not as simple as finding my ancestry and Having All of this, a sudden, yeah, oh. feeling having this eureka moment. I mean, I can't underscore enough how badly I wanted that to be right. the case, right? I began by asking relatives, 
people in my family about our family. And then I sort of went to historical document. And then I went to archives. I went to Rangoon and I went to Luxembourg City. And I'm like pouring over these dusty documents looking for this like light bulb moment where I'm like, here's where I belong in Esh, Luxembourg or in Rangoon, Burma. And there were important moments and there were spooky moments and there were powerful moments, but I never felt like here's my tribe. I did every DNA test. I had my family do the DNA tests and I looked for science to confirm, okay, this is where you belong. But again, I never got definitive results that told me who I was or where I belonged. And, and what I realized in the end, and this is sort of a spoiler, but also not a spoiler is we are preoccupied in this country, especially at this moment with the past and the future. And those are intoxicating and important things. Um, I think it's good to know where you came from and the true history of your people, but we don't invest in the present and we don't invest in community. And where I ended up at the end of this book was feeling like the tribe that I'm with is the tribe that I'm with and that we're given an undisclosed number of years on the thin crust of planet earth. And it is up to us to make the best of those years. You mentioned that you're an only child. Yeah. Uh, and I also am an only child. Only child, only children in the house? Any, oh, yes. All right. Uh, yeah. All right. <laughs> Woohoo. I don't know how. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm comfortable now because that's part of being an only child. And actually, what's funny to me, I laughed right away because I think it's in the very first page of the book. You say, I'm an only child. And then you kind of get, you have a defensive little aside about it. <laughs> right. You know, it's funny. I almost, I tried to strike that. Like there are all these weird footnotes in the book that are like my interior monologue with myself. Like, don't feel bad for me. I never had to fight for dessert. What? I'm an only yeah. child. It's not so bad. Yeah, you, and I tried to delete it. I yeah. tried to delete that footnote because I was like, oh, this is so pathetic and desperate. Like having to quant like just defend my only childdom. But I, 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 it, it ended up in there. It's in there. <laughs> and as an early child, I was like, wow. So that made, first of all, it made me feel insecure because I'm like, oh, wow, are people judging me and I don't know it? I think there's like pity built into being an only child. Yeah. A little bit like, oh, you, you poor thing. Like, who did you play? How did you learn checkers if it was just you? Yeah. Who did right. you play Trivial Pursuit with? Your stuffed animals? That must have been a one-sided well, game. Just, no, I'm just terrified of conflict. Thank you. <laughs> um... Uh, I'm catty, but terrified of conflict. I think that's the only <laughs> child. Um, but so one of the things I think it's actually relevant to the discussion is that, I, I, I don't think this is a spoiler. There's a thread that goes throughout the book about your own sense of loneliness. Mm -hmm. Um, you take these journeys largely by yourself. Um, this is a largely solo expedition to, through history um, to talk to your parents. I mean, you're in this, you're doing this by yourself and you're trying to find some kind of belonging. And I was wondering if being an only child kind of complicates one's search for ethnic or racial identity, like inherently, because you are the only one yeah. who is like you at all. Yeah, I think that that, it, for sure, that complicates it. And also having parents, having a mother who's from Burma, and a father whose roots are in Ireland and Luxembourg. I mean, there are just not a lot of Burmese, Irish, Luxembourgians around. I mean, as far as I know, right? One of the things I discovered in, in the search, what's interesting about tracing your genealogy, as some of you may have done, as a lot of Americans are doing right now, is 
we think of our own family history and then we think of history history and we don't think the two intersect. And what you realize when you trace your family history is trace the story of your grandparents and your great grandparents and your great great grandparents and you will also trace the history of the world. The, the history of my great grandfather intersected with the, the opening of the Suez Canal. That was my great grandfather in Burma. The, the history of my father and the Wagners of Lansing, Iowa intersects with the history of the Winnebago tribe. These are not things I had ever thought about. And it is incredibly um, revelatory and in some way comforting to know that there is a huge world out there and its hugeness is made intimate by the fact that those stories intersect directly with your own and that it's all people and movements of people. I mean, that for an only child was really comforting and eye-opening at the same time. Did you come to the end of this book and feel more connected? Yeah, I did. I mean, I, I'll say a couple of things. Um, one is when I was, you know, one of the things about my parents, and this gets to the, the only child thing, is I love my, I love my parents. They're, they're incredible people and interesting, complicated people at the same time. All the Wagners in the crowd know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, but they didn't dwell too much on where they'd come from or who they'd been. Um, my father made a break with his Midwestern roots in a lot of ways. He was really animated by national politics and went to Washington and his North Star at some point became the Democratic Party. And my mother was from Rangoon, Burma. And while she had these incredibly romantic stories about Burma, she became an American. And so much of her identity as in her adult life, she went to college here, was constructed in and around America. And Burma became kind of like Brigadoon. It was like this magical mist-covered land. I actually don't know the story of Brigadoon, but I drop that like I do. Um, <laughs> but it wasn't real, right? Like they didn't have any particular um, kinship with the places that they'd come from. And as a result, they didn't give me a lot in the way of heritage, right? Like I really was so disconnected that it was like, this became a search to find some connection because it, I wasn't really offered any by my parents. Well, because actually I think You've, we've circled back around, which is that you, you talk about this in the book about how like they didn't offer you this connection, so you take on this journey to try and find some connections. But then in the end, spoiler alert, yeah. you also kind of wind up saying, but maybe it's okay to not have these deep connections to our past because if we overvalued these connections to particular ethnic or racial or political identities, then we exclude whole swaths of other people. Exactly. What I, what I was going to say is what I discovered about my roots is that on both sides of my family, there were very unsavory characters. And we had exfoliated a lot of the bad parts, which I think is an inevitable part of the American story, right? We, we arrive here and we're virtuous newcomers that make it by dint of hard work and divine providence. That's not entirely true in some cases, not at all true. Um, and there's been value in finding the bad parts. And I think it's important to acknowledge the bad parts. But when you're too reliant on, I mean, in Burma, in my, as it concerned my mother's family, I realized that the nationalism and the xenophobia that we see here in the United States cresting is also a part of Burmese culture. And there is no pure good and there is no pure bad. And it is really important to recognize that. And I think there is a simplistic narrative we tell ourselves when we're too reliant on the stories of our ancestors. And that is one of the reasons why I felt like it's about investing in the mean, interesting, complicated present. Truthfully and honestly, um, 
with the information, with all the information that we can gather about who we were in the past, but it is really fundamentally about right now. How did being a journalist shape the way that you did this? <laughs> so I, I, listen, I'm never writing another book is what I can tell you definitively. This was like so hard. I remember there are times when I just like look at the word count at the bottom of the page. Like I, this is the longest thing I've ever read, ever read. No, I've written, I've read books before, but it's the longest thing I've, I've ever written. And it was like 22 pages. And I was like, and I was doing that thing you do in high school where you're like, maybe I'll like triple space it and shrink the margins. Courier. Yeah. Courier font. Yeah. <laughs> I was like. Write the whole book in Courier. Like awesome. anything to make me feel like I was making more progress to an actual book. Um, journalism was, I mean, I couldn't have done this if I hadn't written articles before. Um, I, I approached this from a sort of journalistic point of view, which was I'm going to interview a lot of people. I'm going to go and have an experience and I'm going to write about that. I definitely could not have done this book just sitting, you know, in my study with my cat on my lap, which is how I wrote the book. But I, you know, I think journalists often seek conflict and they seek, they, they like a quest because it feels like they're gathering string in the parlance of the old reporters. And I, and that was, that's how I approached this book. I, I I'm going to, I, it was sort of a forced mystery. Right. And that's actually, I wanted to frame the question exactly. I, I chickened out of framing it the way that I really wanted to, which is that does being a journalist necessarily help you write a book like this? Um, I can see how it helped you like functionally, like yes, yeah, the skills of writing and the skills of reporting, but I'm wondering, like, especially a story like this that requires you to figure out family. Yeah. Well, I mean, the fact that my family is in the audience makes me feel like I haven't alienated uh, oh, them totally. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Sorry. Uh, you know, it's interesting. The New York Times did a news review of this book, like, a week ago. And they said, and the, the writer said that she'd rarely seen a, a, a book that was so unstinting in its criticism. And I thought, well... I don't think it's that unstinting in its criticism. And I asked my mom, I called her, I said, is this book unstinting in its criticism? And she said, well, yes, of course it is. And I said, but you don't take issue with, with your characterizations in the book. And she said, well, yeah, of course I do. And you tell everybody on that book tour, I take issues with my characterization. So I'm telling everybody on this book tour I, that my mother takes issue with her characterizations. Um, I think that it, being a journalist made it complicated because I felt like I had to be honest, right? I also, I also think it complicated it by the fact that, like, maybe a novelist would want a more pat ending or would try and sort of have a, a smoother finish that was less, I think, um, in some ways the fin finish of this book is a little bit mundane, right? But it's also the most honest ending that I could come up with, and it's a true account of my feelings about this whole process. And maybe if I didn't sort of come from professionally the tradition of writing honestly and fully, it would have been a different book, more, more palatable to uh, uh, the audience. I don't know. I think it's perfectly palatable. <laughs> Thank um, you. I saw that same review. And it raised another question for me as far as being a news political journalist. Maybe we should be very specific about the kind of journalism that you practice so that we, and I also practice. So we're talking, so what, how that particular form is, is, in, is informing your book. I think you were very keen um, 
insight in saying you were seeking conflict, like that's definitely something as political reporters we do. We're looking yeah. for a conflict. If there isn't one, we'll create one kind of. Um, <laughs> and I, I can almost, I felt for you in some parts of the book where I was like, I know what she's looking for here. I know what she's looking for here. Um, but another way that being a journalist might have shaped the book in a way that I think the Times reporter actually also cued in on was that for a memoir, your own story is not as present as one might want it to be. Right. It's like all the stories around my story, except for my story, maybe. You have, you're very, you, you're very funny and um, uh, have right, you have good anecdotes about your childhood. And then like around 13 or 14, like, and <laughs> it stopped being interesting. Stuff happened. <sighs> and then, okay, so I'm going to rank it. I mean, you know, you don't appear very much. Well, right. I'm like the central character. I'm like the narrator in the story. You're the journal. I mean, that's where actually what right. I was thinking. I was like, she's a journalist. She thinks she's not the story, but this is a memoir. She's the right. fucking story. Right, right. <laughs> it's funny because my book editor kept saying like, what did you think of this thing? And I would be like, oh, no one cares what I think. And he was like, Alex, it's a memoir. <laughs> And at one point, he was like, your husband was with you on that trip, wasn't he? And I had to add him back in because I was like, yes, yes, yes. And my husband, of course, was like so offended. How could you have written me out of this? And of course, it wasn't purposeful. I was just trying to get to the story itself. Like, I had to talk about... Very Burma. political journalist kind of thing yeah, to do, actually. Well, I had to yeah. get to the genocide of the Rohingya Muslim minority. I had to talk about the, the ethnic cleansing of the native people in America. Like, what time did I have to tell you about my favorite noodle dishes? in Mandalay. I mean, it seemed beside the point, but of course it's not. And I, I think in retrospect, I probably could have brought more into it. And I think that that's thrown into sharp relief at the very end of the book where family members pass away, important family members who are sort of... It won't, it feels odd to treat that as a spoiler. But yeah, well, yes, it, it is, is a spoiler in yes. life and in the book, but it is also, you know, it, it is... It is I, I had allowed myself so little rope to d discuss my own personal feelings that it was really kind of hard at the end of the book. And, and I didn't even write about this, but I was pregnant with my first child. She didn't even write about this in the book. She was pregnant with her first child while she's researching her family's history, oh, yeah. including genetic history. I know, I know, I know. It's so crazy. Oops. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it took, you know, honestly, it took so long to write this book. I wasn't even pregnant when I started writing it. But I think I, I will say, and this is, this is like a little, like, this is some real talk right here. I think... There's, there's being a journalist and there's also being a person on television. And I think a part of me was reluctant to write to, I mean, having written personally about my whole family, it's hard to really volunteer the, the, the depths of your sort of personal experience as someone who also has to go on television and be sort of a happy, shining, smiley television face and doesn't want to receive evil, trolly Twitter feedback, which is something that I've gotten for much of my television career. Um, and I think I was, I think that there was a, a, a little bit of scar tissue that had been built up around all that, that made me gun shy about volunteering too much personal information. Also, I mean, truly, I did think there was so much story going on around me. Like, did you really care about what I was thinking that much? I probably should have put more in. I think this is the big criticism of the book. It's not a crit. It's a, it's a comment. Yes. And no. I and it is well taken. It and is well it is taken. a 
lacuna in it the is, book. It is. It um, is. That is myster- somewhat mysterious. Mm-hmm. I mean, I will be honest, to a certain degree, it kept me reading. Like, where's Alex? <laughs> oh, okay. I mean, you get some of me. For people who haven't read it, it's not like I'm completely I mean, Your absent. personality is there, but it, but there's like, you make a reference to being a bad friend. So I'll just ask you, what do you mean? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. People, my editor had the same thing. He was like, maybe you should explain why you're a bad friend. There was definitely a period, especially in my late 20s and early 30s, where I felt like I was just picking up friends and shedding them and that they were really contingent on my professional world and my, you know, wherever my profession intersected, I would make new communities and then I would shed them when I got new jobs. And that's sort of a function of being an adult, but it, it made the loneliness that I already felt that much lonelier, you know, that you would look back, you know, the iPhones are incredible, right? Because my phone, iPhone at least has like 12 years of photos on it. And sometimes the phone will rewind to like 2004 and I'll look at those photos and, and I'll think, God, where are those people? Who are the, what was that person's name again? And at the time they were the sort of planets in my galaxy. And it always feels so bad to look back on those years and think, God, what happened to those relationships? They fell apart. Not because anybody did anything badly, but just because we lost touch. And is that a function of the 21st century or is that a function of me and my ability to m- maintain friendships? And I think part of that is why I said I was a bad friend because I, I own, I own the, the atrophy of those relationships in large part. And it's made me think like, were they too surface? What really brought us together? Um, that's, that's, some, that's some personal stuff. Thank you. Um, I'm pulling out what, the, what your editor couldn't. I feel really good about myself. Um, and also, you know, hey, we promised Real Talk to Minnesotans. They're all super uncomfortable now. Yeah, sorry. Are you paying attention? To what, Anna? Not just this podcast, but everything. Am I paying attention to everything? No. It's sort of an overwhelming question. I mean, I can think it's kind of somewhat like existential crisis I'm, I'm being sent into here. because If you're paying attention to everything, you're not paying attention to anything. Whoa. Can we get that on a t-shirt? Saying. Yeah. Cool. Actually, it's more like fortune cookie than t-shirt material, I think. I don't know. But Maybe this is... Tony Robbins would say it if he weren't creepy. <laughs> <laughs> It's texture is the app for magazine readers, which Mm -hmm. I actually think so magazines, why magazines are good in the old school thinking of things is actually they keep you from having to pay attention to everything. Yeah, they curate. They were the original curators like kids today maybe don't think of it this way. Their sneakers and their their chance, the rapper, their chance, the rapper Their I can't think of anything besides. Chance the Rapper and Avocado Toast. That's that's it. Kids and with their, their chat Swift. snap and their book face. Texture is the app that offers 200 top magazines all in one place. Mm-hmm. All kinds of magazines, too. Uh, they have some like snooty ones that people might appreciate that the listeners of this show um, would, I'm sure, enjoy, like uh, The New Yorker and The Atlantic. But they also have People, Cosmopolitan and Entertainment Weekly and... My favorites to look at on Texture are the cooking magazines and the architecture magazines because those are the kind of magazines that you kind of want to be able to reference all the time, but sucks to like try and keep them Mm -hmm, around. mm -hmm, mm -hmm, So you can look like two years ago, the barbecue recipes in Bon Appetit. Texture. Texture. It is usually $9.99 a month, but they're giving my listeners a free trial. To start your seven-day free trial, go to texture.com slash friends. Again, that's texture.com slash friends to start reading the latest issues of your favorite magazines today. Texture.com slash friends. Cool. 
Journalist Mehdi Hassan is known around the world for his televised takedowns of presidents and prime ministers. He hosts Upfront on Al Jazeera and is a columnist for The Intercept. And in his new podcast, Deconstructed, Mehdi unpacks a game-changing news event of the week while challenging the conventional wisdom in a tight 30-minute package, a little quicker than what we do here. He starts his show with his take on one topic and what the mainstream news is getting wrong or what context is being missed. And then he goes into a deep analysis and conversation with his guest or guests of the week. And get this, his guests have included Judd Apatow, Bernie Sanders, and Hassan Minhaj. So he kind of covers the gamut. I would say, in terms of who you might be expecting. Um, It's everyone from comedians to politicians to, for instance, Stefan Clark's fiance. So you're going to hear from a lot of different people. And the show has covered such topics as the violence in Gaza from the perspective of Israeli activists against the occupation and, of course, police shootings, as through the eyes of the fiance of Stefan Clark. Also, he's talked about the dangers of John Bolton with former diplomats. As a Brit and a Muslim, an immigrant based in Donald Trump's Washington, D.C., Mehdi Hassan gives a refreshingly provocative perspective on the ups and downs of American and global politics. Deconstructed is a show that cuts through political drivel and media misinformation to give you a straight take on one big news story of the week. It is out every Friday, just like this pod. You can listen and subscribe at theintercept.com slash deconstructed or on any podcast platform. One of the most fascinating sections to me was the section on the DNA testing. Yeah. Because although you talk about race a lot, obviously throughout the book, and it's a theme and a current, you do kind of divide it a little bit. Yeah. Like you're like, this is my, I'm investigating my Luxembourg history and I'm going to think about whiteness and here's my, I'm going to investigate my Burmese family and I'm going to think a lot about, you know, being brownness. Brownness. I didn't, you, you don't say brownness, but yeah, brownness is, is there. Um, and they're pretty focused. I think I'm not, I'm not I think I'm being yes, fair yeah. in saying that that's pretty focused um, to those two sections. And then in the DNA section, well, literally things get twisted. Um, <laughs> that double helix. Uh, uh, and not only do you wind up talking more about race, just sort of a personal angle, but also you talk about the white privilege of DNA testing. Yeah, it's, yeah, it is. is Hashtag fascinating. So tell us more. So I think people, I, I had had this suspicion because I happen to know that most DNA, um, uh, repositories and research data sets, uh, data sets yeah. are owned or influenced by Mormon church yeah, because they have a big interest in yes. genealogy. Yes. So tell us a little bit about how this intersects for, with your story. Well, just to, for people who don't know, the Mormons are very big into genealogy because in large part, the Mormon church believes the bigger your family the more you get into heaven, like the, the more, the more you get into heaven, well, not the more you but, get into heaven, the but, more company but, you have actually, yeah, the more like, company you have in heaven. Yeah. And <laughs> like, they actually want to be with their families. Oh God. Yeah. <laughs> um, and they also believe in posthumous baptisms where there's a living stand in for deceased relatives or extended relatives that get baptized into the church. So there's this real push to expand and extend and develop family trees. And so Ancestry.com and uh, some of FamilySearch.com, a couple of the big genealogy sites are affiliated with or were affiliated with. Were started by. Or were started by members of the Mormon church. Um, And members of the Mormon church get sort of special dispensations and free memberships and all the rest. 
But that's not even like the most interesting kind of like white privilege that there is in this. There's so much white privilege in DNA testing. Where it to is. begin? The what you need to know about DNA testing on whole, and this is gradually being exposed. There's a great piece on this in the Atlantic today is that much of the data sets that these companies buy or spend money to accrue are based on the market. Who has $100 to, to buy a DNA test? Mostly white people, not a lot of Burmese people. And so the data sets... And who gives this and, and who also provides these samples? White people. And the, it's sort of like a, a feedback loop because... The like 23andMe, for example, a lot of its DNA comes from its users. And if there are an overwhelming amount of Irish Americans that are using the test, they're going to have more Irish American DNA. And these, these results aren't, you know, it's, they're sort of proclaimed to be like science's final word, but of course they're not. There are algorithms and interpretations. I talked to some of the scientists and they said, we're, we're puzzle solvers. And it's like, well, I, I didn't realize it was subjective, but of course it is. And when I did the test, I got results that were all over the place. My one test told me I was 14% Scandinavian. Skull. <laughs> which you guys... One of us. One, one of us. us. <laughs> which I was delighted by. I was like, that's why I'm so tall. I love Ikea. We're going to start celebrating St. Lucia Day. Give me the crown with the candles. Yeah. Let's do this. And then the other DNA test was like, you're 0% Scandinavian and your father's 7% Scandinavian. I can't remember. But like the math didn't add up. And the more you dig into it, it was like, but that's because their data set is overwhelmingly Scandinavian in part because the Mormon church purchased a lot of Scandinavian or the Scandinavians, the Mormon church is overwhelmingly white and a lot of Mormon DNA. These companies have purchased repositories of Mormon DNA and so there's an overcorrection for white Scandinavian DNA in some of these tests. Right. There's all kinds of fungibility with this to say nothing of what happens with the poor brown people on my side of the family. My, the, you know, the results they returned were overwhelmingly Mongolian. And I said, you know, that's, that's, because- that's so interesting. Like, why, why do we have all this Mongolian DNA? And then sort of sheepishly, one scientist said, well, you're not allowed to take any DNA out of China. So, and I was like, I was like, I'm Genghis Khan riding through the wind with steps in my fur wrap. No, it's just because they find the nearest sort of DNA that's similar and that's how they sort of geolocate you. Right. There's no Burmese DNA, as far as I can tell. And then there's the question of how they're even dividing these up on country lines. You cite a couple of academics who basically say, this is bad. Yeah. <laughs> we if shouldn't you ta- be doing these tests because they give, they reify race and they give a false sense of racial purity and yeah. superiority. Exactly. You talk to anthropologists and sociologists about these DNA tests and a lot of them have, take a lot of issue with them because A, they double down on the idea that we are genetically different from one another. And like every evolutionary biologist I talk to is like, we are so similar I mean, this is like splitting hairs. And the idea of race is literally contested. What's that? It's literally splitting hairs. It's literally splitting hairs. And the idea of race is incredibly contested. The idea that there's a genetic basis for race is a fundamentally contested thing. 
The other reality is when people do these tests, it's rarely to find out the truth that they're a citizen of the world. They hang on to some part of their ancestry, right? Like, I mean, I did it. I was like, I'm a Norwegian Mongolian. Well, we actually haven't even gotten into like, you had a real fixation on whether or not you might be a little bit Jewish. Right. Yeah, we right. That's like a... That's like, yeah, you really, that's well, a thread in the book. Yeah, it is. <laughs> like it is actually an organizing. You're hopeful. Like, yes. you're very, very hopeful that you might turn out to be part Jewish. Yes. In the beginning of this ancestor quest, as I was sitting down with my father, you know, one day as an aside, he said, well, you know, your Aunt Susan thinks we're Jewish. And I thought, well, wait, well, like, it, it, was, it, was not, it was not just like record scratch disruptive. It was literally like I, you pull out the, the tablecloth in the middle of a 12-course dinner disruptive. Like, how could that be? And the more I talked to family members, the more clues, whether it was through my great-grandfather's... Well... Well, there were... It, it, how many great-grandfathers who are Catholic I, knew I Yiddish? I appreciated your journey in here, but whether or not like you're a reliable narrator of this particular part of the journey... Like, well, no, no, these things were said to me. and They, they were, were said to you, and I was like, she really is hanging on to this oh, stuff. Oh, for sure. Like, but, she's really... Let's, let's begin. Because there the was, clues are slender. Well, I mean, you could argue, I would argue that the, the functional knowledge of Yiddish uh, uh, and... Uh, and, and I, 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 and, I can't and do spoiler alert. I can't do spoiler alert on this. Because it's... The, <laughs> the, the contention that... You know, an uncle at one point had said, well, I'm just an old Jew. I mean, these are things that make you think maybe you were Jewish, right? It turns out he just might have been racist. Right. Well, I, we never be, actually decipher what Uncle Leo was talking right. about. But it set me on this course. And to your point, Anna Marie, I was excited by it. And most, it, it, largely because I wanted to rabble rouse, I think. You know, I wanted to find something to complicate this anodyne family history that I'd been given. And Judaism was an incredible vessel for that. And then we can, we can return. I think, hmm, I think that's a really interesting admission. I think it's something that strikes me as a fairly privileged mm. point of view to be able to say, I want to find this complication mm -hmm. in my family history. And it brings me to one of the more fascinating asides in the book, which is the fact that one of these DNA companies has a whole special squad to deal with people who call in upset that they don't have a Native American uncle. Yeah. <laughs> well, because <laughs> I, I come from like a, you know, my, in my Texas part of my family, there's always been like, oh, well, yes, we're part, we're part Cherokee. Yeah. You know, and, and no, we're not. Like, yeah. we're, we're not. And, but this, it turns out there's this very reliable, like, legend throughout America so who here has been told at some point they had a Native American in their family? Right. Who well, here actually believes that? Okay. And, and this, we are on Native American land. Right. And there's a large Native American population here, but I feel like there's this really popular myth in white America that, like, I have a connection. It's so interesting. And it's so popular they have a special squad. Yeah, well, I mean, look at Elizabeth Warren, right? Yeah, exactly. This is a hugely, I mean, this is, part of our American story. I, I have to digress from that point, though, to say that in my dad's story, it wasn't at all. And, it, and, and yet accounting for Native Americans should have been part of our family yeah. history, right? My dad grew up, and I remember he said this thing to me. He said, well, there, was not a, there wasn't a person of color in our town except for the, the, to the town's lone black dry cleaner. And I remember thinking, like, okay, well, that's weird. And also that begs further investigation. And, and, I, and I started doing research into 
Alamakee County, which doesn't sound like, I don't know, a white, a white name. It's, of course, an Indian name. And I did the research, and I realized that just a number of years before my great-grandfather arrived on terra firma in Lansing, Iowa, in Alamakee County, that land belonged to the Winnebago tribe. And I started reading these accounts of the various tribal chiefs begging Andrew Jackson to let them go home again. And I realized that, like, at no point had we ever accounted for the fact that this land belonged to someone else. I mean, my, my dad had these incredibly... Your, wist- your family specifically. My family specifically. Not. My father had these incredibly wistful recollections of growing peaches or eating off of the family garden and the, the bounty of the land. And yet, at no point did we account for the fact that the land had belonged just a few years earlier to someone else, rightfully. And the best part of this book, truly the best part of this book is the fact that when I tell my son the story of the Wagners of Lansing, Iowa, it's going to begin a lot earlier. And it's going to account for the people who we got the land from that we then ate off of, that then fed us, that that made us big, and then made us great. And that's the most rewarding part of actually finding out the truth of your family history, is that you no longer have to accept the beginning point and the end point that you've inherited. You can start it over. And you can begin it at a different place that's a more honest accounting of what we, especially white Americans, have been given and what we earned and what we stole and what became ours that was someone else's to begin with. You know, you reference especially white Americans and what you just said. And I'm now going to ask you the most uncomfortable question. Yeah. That I have, which is in the section of the book about DNA, you talk to another academic who says that the idea that we can have a mixed race identity is fiction. That it's, at least in Asian and white mixtures, that sounds so weird. That's actually how she says it, which sounds weird to me, but she uses he, the term, I think it's he. he yeah. Uh, weirdly, weird, I'd assume it's a woman. Yeah. Good, um, I like that. <laughs> uh, that it winds up being one or the other. Yeah. It winds up actually being very binary. And you do some self-reflection. Yep. And say that you actually think you, you've identified as white. Well, for most of my adolescence and early adulthood, all my yeah. friends were white. I lived in a white quadrant of Upper Northwest. and, and Upper Northwest Washington. Sorry, well, yeah. Upper Northwest Washington, D.C., And in my professional life, the people making decisions, the people I was working with, the power grid was dictated by white people and usually white males. And to navigate that world and just as a a human being, as a student, I was much more white. I had no relationship to my Burmese identity. I mean, I would, my mother and my grandmother would drag me to the monastery and every April is Burmese New Year. And they would take me to these thin jam festivals where people were throwing water on each other. Cause that's the tradition in Burma. Cause it's hot as hell in Burma in April, but it is not hot. Don't as do hell. that here. No one and do that here. You do no not one. want to do that in Minnesota in April. Much no. respect to the Burmese community of Minnesota that yeah. celebrates New Year by throwing water on each other. I can't imagine I how hope cool they do that it indoors. Is. <laughs> Maybe it's just a shower spray. <laughs> yeah. um, but like, I didn't have any right. grounding in it. And I will tell you, as I've gotten older, and I think also in the last several years, I have come to embrace being a person of color. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's because I've gotten older. I think I've seen, I've become much more aware <laughs> of being a person of color in a way politically that I hadn't been. I think the narratives 
thankfully, uh, about the, the, the sort of work and life of people of color. Those are more prominent. And I feel proud in a way that I, I didn't even think of it as an issue of pride when I was growing up. But I think your fundamental question slash point that it's very hard to just be mixed, that you are fundamentally asked to choose remains true today. I mean, Barack Obama was our first mixed race president, but how many people call him the our first, first mixed how many race people president. dwell on his white mother? Barack Obama is seen as our first black president. I mean, in America, you are asked to choose. And that's a reality. I think it's actually an unfortunate reality and maybe it changes the more diverse our society gets, but it is still the truth. I became an LLC this year, John. An LLC? What's an LLC? A limited liability corporation. Oh. Like, actually, it was the Trump tax cuts that finally pushed me into doing it. <laughs> Great. Cool. <laughs> but I'm officially a business. Like, I've been, you know, kind of a business for most of my life because I'm a writer. Um, but yeah, so I actually do get to write off more stuff, although the tax changed so you don't write off as many things as you I'm used bored. to. I'm bored. You're bored. But what I'm saying is that I have, like, business mail to send, but I don't have to go to the post office anymore because of Stamps.com. You use Stamps.com to send your business mail. That's right. Try to be a little more enthusiastic. You use Stamps.com <laughs> to send your business mail. With Stamps.com, you can access all the amazing services of the post office right from your desk 24-7 when it's convenient for you. You. Capitalized. Right you now. buy and print U.S. postage for any letter, any package. Use your own computer and printer, and the mail carrier picks it up. Do you know that it used to say mailman? Did it used to say mailman in your versions? Because it used to say mailman in our versions. And I would always go, mailman? What is this? What are we sending a package to uh, Don Draper? <laughs> mailman? What is this? What is this? It's a the mail movie? carrier. What is this? The, the context of the film Hidden Figures? You know? But now it's a mail carrier, so they got up to date. Hell yeah. And it's also, I mean, they're living in the future because it's stamps.com. You can do anything you can do at the post office. I haven't seen Hidden Figures. I just want to make sure that's clear in case I don't understand what the movie's about. But I do believe it's about African-American women contributing to the space race. Yes, in the 1950s. It's a very, it's, I read the book, but I didn't see the movie. The book is very good. Um, I'm going to crush that movie on a plane someday soon. Just absolutely hit that movie out of the park. Maybe I'll send you a copy of the book <laughs> through the mail yeah. using stamps.com. I mean, you can send me the copy of the book, but be, you know what I could do is I could put my uh, drink on the book while I watch the <laughs> fucking movie. <laughs> uh, right now, use Friends uh, for a special offer. It includes up to $55 of free postage at digital scale in a four-week trial. Don't wait. $55 of free postage. That's a lot. Yeah. Do you know how you get it? You go to stamps.com, and before you do anything else, you click on the radio microphone at the top of the homepage and type in Friends. That's what you do. Anna, you know what? I'll take this one. <laughs> when it comes to bra shots, <laughs> it's get all about it finding the right fit for you. Mm -hmm. There's only one lingerie that offers bras in sizes double A through G and half cup sizes. I know you didn't know there was a half cup size. What does that mean? Half a boob? <laughs> it sort of means half a boob. Yeah. I mean, like you're between sizes. I know what it actually meant. I don't think they mean that it's for people that have 2.5 boobs. Well, you might boobs. have half a, you might be like a, I don't think they have a half A. That would be literally half huh. a boob. Huh, anyway, huh, 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 huh. Uh, they use thousands of real women's measurements. This is so beyond you. I feel, but I'm going to carry on 
Did you know that most old school bra you brands didn't know any of this. only carry 15 <laughs> sizes? I got to tell you, I got to tell you, Third Love, from my very layman's perspective, which is that I've had zero contact with bras. I'm a gay person. I never have dated women. I just made it all the way through without dating women. I don't, I, you know, I have a zero mother, contact. but we don't talk about bras. So it's uh, uh, 15 sizes. That seems like a lot. But I guess it's not because your boobs come in all kinds of shapes, ladies, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> well, when you think of like the size of a chest, like that's multiple. That's one size, right? Is uh-huh. the chest. And then the boobs on top of that. So there's like multiple like circumference. You know what this, you know, you know then, what the context for me of this is? Uh, when you build a video game character and you decide how okay. wide the character is and how tall the character is and their facial features. And you try to build a avatar that kind of looks a bit like you or like somebody you wish you looked like or somebody fun. This is somewhat you could I thought you were going to go much more specific. I didn't realize that like maybe some video games allow you to build different size breasts on avatars. But anyway, 60 sizes, including half cups, not 60 just, sizes, that's a lot. But again, think wow. about it. It's the circumference of the chest. Uh-huh. No, and I then, get it. Kinda. So like you multiply, you know, seven different like huh. inches times like seven different cup sizes, including half sizes. But there's a, this all means that there's a perfect bra for everyone. Third, perfect bra for everyone. With that many different sizes. Perfect bra for everyone. I have several third love bras um, that you actually may someday see because some of them are quite pretty mm. and like have racer backs and I like wear them underneath uh, tank tops so that the racer back shows. Huh. You, so I may personally increase the number of bras you've seen like on a person which I'm guessing is a low number. 15% off your first order. Let's move on. Let's move on. 15% off your thrift order with offer code friends. Thirdlove.com slash friends. Find your perfect fitting bra. Uh, you can get them in uh, size L. <laughs> no, they don't go to L. So stupid. You can get them in size uh, uh, F. That's a size. Size B. That those are both sizes. Size B point five. You have the circumference of the chest plus the cup size. So like a hundred and five. Well, it's G. inches, so it's like twenty eight. Twenty eight B B. Yeah. It's like have, trying to remember where you parked. It's more like looking at it. <laughs> Thirdlove.com slash friends. Now we move to audience questions. We have a mic that's going we around. We have a mic that's going around. Or that will go around if we anyone wants to ask a or question. if you want to raise your hand, there's a question there. right there. Such polite Minnesotans. They're right over there. I'm Alice I. Colts, and among my many hats, I'm a genetic genealogist. Oh. oh well, welcome. Yeah. Well, I, I loved reading the book. Your voice was in my head the whole time when I was reading it, which was really wonderful. The piece that I missed about the DNA part is that I know you tested all of your family. And for those of us who live in that world more regularly, the ethnicity is the least of the value of DNA testing. So I wanted to know from your perspective what you found out about the people you're related to, your other family members, and things like that that you might have discovered as doing DNA testing. You know, I have to, I'm going to be brutally honest. I was so focused on the ethnicity piece that I really didn't go into this sort of family tree piece. Although I have like 76 alerts in my inbox about people I'm related to. I look forward to meeting all of them. In the same way that there's also the debate around the sort of medical results, the health results that you're getting from a lot of these tests. And there's a lot of sociopolitical um, debate about that. I couldn't get in. I mean, it just became sort of like, 
I, the ancestry piece I could have written, or the DNA piece I could have written a whole book on. I wanted to ask you a question about representation. Uh, made me think of it because we were uh, because of Will's question. I'm talking a little bit about the need for representation of ambiguous um, uh, ethnicities, and you were talking about covering white nationalism. And I I didn't ask you any questions about the circus. Yeah. Oh yeah. The, the Showtime show the that showtime I'm currently show. filming, yeah. like a crazy person in the middle right. of a book tour. So you did come on that show after Mark Halperin was ejected, let's say. Sure, kicked off. Um, because of fairly serious allegations of sexual harassment mm -hmm. and sexual um, assault. And you coming on, I gather you, there were conversations about coming on before he left, but it did look a lot like a specific rebuke, you know, Okay, you seem, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. Right, that's good. Why um, not? I mean, so two things. I was I was talking to Showtime well before anything with Mark happened, and I'd actually done right. two episodes of the show in season one. So I was always going to be part of the season. Right. And I, I, it's important to note that because people really do want to see it as a binary proposition, like white male journalist is out, female journalists of color is in. And in fact, The Hill had a headline that said, female journalist to replace <laughs> Mark Halpern. And I was like, guys, you're missing the moment here. Yeah. Like, I'm, you're, I'm supposed to have a name. Um, but... I, I actually thought it was like generic female journalist. Honestly, when I saw that headline, I saw you tweet it, and I was like, so they're just picking a female? Yeah, like, <laughs> doesn't matter. Just give me one that's a female. Like, rotating cast? Anyone. Anyone? Like, yeah. Um, the, but part of me didn't mind, honestly, because what we're seeing right now is a course correction. I mean, it is really unfortunate that the catalyst has to be a series of allegations and to some degree evidence that men have been serially harassing women or preying on women and that that's the catalyst to bring more women into the boardroom and onto the television screen and all the rest, but I will take it. <laughs> and I am like right on. It's fantastic. And let me tell you, The Circus is a different show, and I feel like it's going to be better and also more responsive to this political moment because there's a woman on this show. So I think it's great all around. That's funny because I saw in an interview you did with Variety, they must have totally misrepresented what you said because they Probably said... Probably it's Variety. <laughs> Sorry, Cause, I cause, like and Variety. Because I, I wrote it down because it was like they said, uh, you said that the show wouldn't be covering issues of gender and harassment only, or they would covering the issues of gender and harassment only in as much as they're part of the news cycle. And I was like, have we we had a news cycle where gender and harassment haven't been part of this? Story? Yeah, I think I was trying to clear. I mean, I think, you know, I want like, to I mean, literally have we had a news cycle <laughs> yeah. where gender and sexual harassment haven't been a part of this? You, you think Stormy Daniels is part of gender and harassment? Yes. Um, yes. Mean, our president is, yes. is a serial admitted sexual assailant. Yes. So you can't write about Trump without Correct. writing sexual harassment. Correct. And in fact, we dealt with this on the last episode of The Circus. So I interviewed Jen Palmieri, who is a former Clinton communications director, Obama communications director, and she contextualized this whole moment as actually a great, there, we, we have been on a collision course as it concerns men, women, sex, and power. And that goes back to Lewinsky and probably before Lewinsky. Yeah. Um, and Anita this Hill. Is the, this is the, what's that? Anita Hill. Exactly. This is the reconciliation. This is the reckoning. Sally Hemings. And <laughs> it goes back to the inception of America. Um, but those conversations and the conversation that I had with her, that's not something that would have happened last season. It wouldn't have happened in a different, I mean, we weren't actually having those conversations before this president. And this is a catalyst to have those conversations. I guess my clarification in the variety piece was more about the circus is incredibly responsive to the news cycle. I know this because like tomorrow I'm going to be on the steps of the Supreme court 
hearing about Trump's travel ban with one of the plaintiffs. We are, you know, I would love to have more about gender and race and equity in general on the show. And to the degree that those are sort of subplots of the American political narrative, they will be. But they're, plot, they're totally plots. They are. They are. They are. <laughs> but we also yeah. remain incredibly responsive right. to what's happening in the news cycle. Sorry. Yes. I, thank you. I am adopted, actually. And uh, I never had much concern about where my, where my uh, ancestry was. And I sort of even had an aversion to kind of finding out because... You know, I was adopted by two white people, and I was, you know, considered white and so on, had all the male privilege, male white privilege, and so on. Well, um, I guess because I really thought as I got older, I ought to have some kind of identity beyond just what I had in my world. Um, I did uh, go for one of those DNA tests, and of course, my hope was I'd be something really exotic, you know. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. It's something. Of course, what did I come up with? 90% Scandinavian, believe it or not. Well, not know, 90, we're all Scandinavian large, in the end. Yeah, really. Yeah. And so I'm so fascinated Skull. by your, your, you know, your bent on this and, and the bias in it. I hadn't really thought of that. Turns out that my aversion to it was right, but for all the wrong reasons, I guess. But um, just fascinating. And, um, you know, I also, your, your comments about so much Scandinavian and white data means maybe I still have a chance. <laughs> But I mean, I, are I, you I hate to, you are might you just be 90% Scandinavian. I don't know. I'm not a genetic genealogist. A little bit of Iberian. But, but, but maybe you're a little bit more Scottish than that test. I mean, who, who can know? Um, I, I do, look, I don't begrudge anybody that wants to know more about where they came from, right? I just think the DNA tests are kind of like a cheap way of doing it. You know, the real work well, not is... Not literally, unfortunately. No, because, not literally. Yes. In fact, they're very expensive. The better way... I mean, the better way... You're adopted, so that is a you know specific category for people who are interested. Who people who aren't? I mean, and, and that adds a challenge that I can't begin to sort of tackle right here on this stage. But for people who who know their their parent their birth parents and are interested in their genealogy, the the work is the work. You gotta make some phone calls. You gotta first of all talk to your family more. I mean, everybody should be doing that. Call your mom. I think one of the big lessons of this book is talk to your family. More. Yeah, talk to your family more, and also. Learn the facts as they actually are. Don't just spit into a vial and wait for the website to tell you that you're 90% Scandinavian. Like, actually do a little genealogical work. It's a fairly easy. A lot of it's been digitized. And that's truly how you find out the story. I mean, because we're all looking for the story. The DNA test's like an invented story about Ikea and St. Lucia and Genghis Khan. That's not your history. That's not my history. Your history is actually found in documents and it's found in archives and it's found in conversations. So I want to go back to the journey. Um, it's kind of a couple questions here. What do you do when it's done? Are you happy with what you found? And do you feel more whole, like you found belonging afterwards? Those are fantastic questions. Um, my producer, Jeff. Thank you, producer Jeff. <laughs> of course, they're fantastic questions. Yeah. I would expect nothing less from your producer. Um, what do you do when it's done? First of all, um, I, don't think the, I don't think belonging to something is ever done. I mean, I think what I learned in this is community takes work. It takes the maintenance of relationships. It takes curiosity. It takes empathy. It takes emotional investment. 
So if you really want to find belonging, it's kind of an active process. So I didn't feel like I was done. In fact, in many ways, I felt like I was beginning. I, I got to a point where I understood how I could feel rooted. And now life is the work of maintaining those roots. Um, so there was a sense of peace. I think I came away with this much more empathetic about you know, people's shortcomings and how we're trying to kind of just get through this life in whatever way we can, which is, it sounds a little bit Pollyannish and maybe like a, too much of a homily, but, you know, we all come from places that are a little bit broken. I mean, the thing about America is that everybody has a backstory that inevitably has fragments and shards and splinters in it. And that's actually what makes this country great. We don't acknowledge it enough. And especially right now, we tend to talk in grandiose terms about America and Americanism, but truly America is a place of forgiveness and movement. And what I realized in the end is, you know, to be American is to be part of an idea. But what characterizes our species, the homo homo sapiens, is movement. And as much as we love talking about our bloodlines, they don't end, nor do they really truly begin. They will inevitably mutate through marriage and travel and globalization. And this is just all part of one idea. We are all part of one idea of America right now. And that idea is going to shift and change in generations hence. And when my son's 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 daughter's son does his DNA test, it's going to light up a completely different part of the globe. And there's something beautiful in that. And that's inherently what I think makes us Americans is our capacity for change and um, the unknown and excitement about the unknown. So uh, that's what I came away with at the end of the book. And that's it for the show. Next week, we'll be back. We will also next week have listener questions. If you have a question for the show, please write to withfriendslikepod at gmail.com. Of course, you can follow the show on Twitter at crooked underscore friends. And of course, I'm on Twitter too at Anna Marie Cox. See you next week. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I'm excited to be teaming up with Lexus GX and Sirius XM on some very special 99PI episodes. We're heading to some of the cities in the U.S. that have special meaning for me and exploring the ways that these cities marry form and function. To learn more about the Lexus GX and Sirius XM and Lexus vehicles, visit Lexus.com slash GX and SiriusXM.com slash Lexus Trial. The all-new Lexus GX. Live up to it. Check out the 99% Invisible feed now and listen to these special episodes. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.